You're listening to The Review, first broadcast on the 21st of September 2013 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Review, your weekly preview and review of the arts here on Monocle 24, coming to you live from Studio One at Midori House with me, Steve Bloomfield, and Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, the first major Australian art exhibition in London for half a century. So why has it taken so long, and is it any good? We'll be finding out. The best bits of the new Danish music scene are female and independent, apparently. We'll listen in. Christian Nyholm from Fake Diamond Records in Copenhagen will be introducing us to some of their latest tracks. And we're front row at the San Sebastian Film Festival to get the lowdown on this year's event and discuss some of the titles making an impact. And then there was Light Tent, my non-identical twin. He got the brawn. I got the brains. That's from the beautifully named the young and prodigious Mr. Spivet. Uh, so, lots to look forward to this week on The Review here on Monocle 24. So, welcome one and all. Uh, and, uh, and welcome back, Andrew Muller, from, uh, from a rather interesting trip you've been on. I have, and welcome to you back from a rather interesting one you've been on as well. Who's going to go first? <laughs> They're both a little bit odd, I think I have to say. Um, but go on, wh- where have you been? Uh, I was in Albania uh, last week for the fourth time, I think, in the last eight or nine years. One of my very favourite countries. This is a story for uh, an imminent edition of Monocle magazine, basically meeting Albania's um, unusual new government as they prepare to take charge of the country. I particularly like the pictures of the the turtles in in the new prime minister's office, just sort of wandering around. It was a consider. I mean, I've, I've I have known uh, the new prime minister Eddie Rama uh, for some time since he was the mayor of uh, Tirana, um, and it does actually it is in keeping with an arts program because he is in fact an artist. Uh, JRP Ringier have just published a book of his diary doodles. Um, he draws on his he draws abstracts on his diary pages during meetings, and they've just been they've just been collected and published. And, he, yes, and he draws them as well with I mean not just with you know pen and paper. There's you look at his, he has of his desk and it's like and, it's yeah he has hundreds know. of texters and pencils and crayons on his desk. But yes, his office is roamed by two turtles uh, called uh, Fatos and Sali after Albania's previous two prime ministers, neither of whom <laughs> he actually likes very much. No. Um, I didn't know about them before I went into the office and was therefore about three inches away from being obliged to start the interview with, I'm sorry, Mr. Prime Minister, I appear to have trodden on your turtle. Yeah. Tough to come back from. I, I would have. It would have been interesting to get that call as well back in the office. Sort of. Yeah, your, uh, your reporter's in jail. He, he killed the Prime Minister's turtle. Yes. It would have been good. Anyway, where have you been? Uh, I've been in Lapland. Good heavens. Meeting the most famous person in Lapland. And who is... He's big. He wears a red coat. Wears a red everything, actually. Got a big beard. Um, and this this is, again, for the November issue of Monocle magazine, which has an Arctic theme, uh, the Albania story aside. And so we thought, you know, who better to actually interview for the national icon than the Arctic's only really icon, uh, real icon. And not only did we meet him, I also had to give him a lift at one stage. We were... At his grotto. You had to give Santa a lift. We're at the grotto. He's, isn't he supposed to have this kind of, you know... Yes, here's the thing. Turns out the grotto, quite a way away from the reindeer farm. So oh, we were going to go see. to the reindeer farm, 
Uh, I'd hired a car, a little Skoda at the airport and had to give him a lift in the Skoda. Can, can you imagine how shattering that would have been for any children who, who, who'd <laughs> hap, happened to see, hang on, I thought he had some sort of magic sleigh, and there he is in a rented Skoda. He, he got into the car, sort of squeezed in next to me, and uh, and he sort of turned, sort of look, looked at me as if to say, okay, we can go now. I said, okay, can we just take a moment to just appreciate how strange this is? He says, yes, I get that a lot. <clears throat> Don't go. <laughs> And we went, there we are. Uh, anyway, that's Albania, that's Lapland. You can read all about it in the November issue of Monocle, which is our ooh, 19th, 20th of October, something like that. Uh, right now, though, you're listening to The Review. You are indeed. This is The Review on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller and Steve Bloomfield. Now, opening today at the Royal Academy in London is the most prestigious collection of Australian art ever shown outside that nation. The imaginatively titled Australia exhibition includes more than 200 works spanning as many years of Australian visual art, including several certifiable national treasures which are rarely allowed to leave the country. As the curator Anna Gray explains, the hope is it will open up people's eyes to Australia's wealth of creativity. At the moment, I think probably people are dreadfully ignorant about Australian art, but hopefully this exhibition will make a dramatic change to that and people will realise how wonderfully creative our artists are and that we are a creative nation as well as a sporting nation. And here to give us his take on Australia, the exhibition as opposed to the country, or perhaps a bit of both, is London's Evening Standard critic and review regular Ben Luke. Uh, Ben, welcome back to the review. Um, What did you make of it? I thought it was a a fascinating show, um, rather sprawling, uh, with really far too many works, I thought, in it. I mean, you know, the, the Royal Academy galleries, the main galleries at the Royal Academy, are some of the biggest spaces in London. They're enormous, and it is an enormous show. But even these big spaces, they're broken up to include more walls to fit all these works on. So I felt, on the one hand, it it tried to do too much, but at the same time, it did give a a very um, comprehensive guide to the major players in in Australian art. Yeah, I thought it was a solid introduction. I liked the way it was arranged more or less chronologically. One, one of the one of the, er, the periods of Australian art that's always really fascinated me, it's those first paintings by Europeans of the Australian landscape, and they're wrong. They, 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 can't, they can't... It's it's like people trying to speak a language they, don't in, they haven't got entirely right in their heads. They try to paint Australia, and it all ends up looking like Dorset. It's, it's, it's actually... And it takes nearly a century until you get the Australian Impressionists like Roberts and McCubbin, who are actually painting Australia in a way that would be recognisable to anybody who's actually Australian. I, I've, I just, I've always been intrigued by how long that took. That's right, because if you think about it, the first people that went there... I mean, the, the very first paintings that are made there are, are, are really quite amateurish aren't they they're sort of then these are not great painters who have gone over there and that's also true but but even even the first sort of proper academician artists that go over there you're right they they're so steeped in the kind of european language that they're attempting if you look at the works by um uh von gerard and by chevalier these are sort of great European romantic paintings, but staged in Australia. And you're right that when there is this moment in the show and it's around 1880 when you get to those Australian impressionists where you suddenly see Australian light. And of course... You know, you know better than anyone, Andrew, that that, that that Australian light is completely different to to the light in Europe and indeed in in America elsewhere. It's that flat, 
you know, the, the, the light from as high as you can possibly get it beating down it's, on that incredible it, harsh it's, light. It's the one quality that's remarked upon by artists and photographers especially. To me, it always seems in Australia that the sky is further away from the ground than it is anywhere else, and that's why you get that weird light. But, that's, but that is exactly the quality that those early painters just could not get right at all and absolutely it, it is actually quite funny i think one of the one of the interesting sort of aspects of that early part of the show is you get you get depictions of indigenous peoples and we all know now what was actually going on and of course mm. there was this this terrible genocide basically that was happening and um it's so what's so interesting is that the the the, the historical stories come forth much later in the show so you have a sort of fake idea of colonial Australia at the start of the show and then gradually that sort of seeps out through the show and actually I felt for me it was a very very bold and positive decision to begin the show with a room full of Aboriginal paintings. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the, what's always amazed me about those paintings, which only have really become quite voguish in the last 20 or 30 years as Australia is really, well, that is white Australia has really begun to properly address that aspect of our history. But those paintings, and especially the early ones, the really early ones, when you look at them, especially the ones which are painted to be laid flat, is how similar they look to Australia as seen from an aeroplane. Um, which, it, it, I mean, I think it really says something about the veracity of them as works of art, but I, I'm always really haunted by that, that these arts, that were, these things that were painted by people who'd never seen an aeroplane would give you such a, an accurate representation of Australia from 12,000 metres up. Yeah, and, it, and, that, and actually one of the really successful aspects of the show is, and I wish they'd done it more actually, is that they put a couple of those paintings on the floor mm. so that you look down on them as they, I mean, the, the artists make them in that sense. They don't make them on the wall of their studios. They, they make them in their um, local space and they make them on the floor. And so therefore to look down on them is actually the correct vista to have of them. And as you say, there is this, because it's so connected, all of those paintings are so connected with the experience of the land over time. It's not about trying to capture a landscape, a, a still of a landscape, if you like. These are lived landscapes. They're landscapes as experienced over time. And we're talking about ancient time. We're not just talking about the present. These are artists that are making works about their ancestry. So to me, those Abor Aboriginal paintings are eternally fascinating and of course with a very modern eye they are actually they are abstractions and therefore therefore appeal to a very contemporary vis, uh, viewpoint of of uh, abstract painting so i think i think you know though that that electric first uh, room of the show is one of the one of the best i think there's a danger with a show like this that tries to encapsulate an entire country in one show that it's either far too big far too sprawling um or that also it's not big enough because there are certain things that are missed. Andrew, do you think there were things that you hoped to see there or issues that you hoped to be explored that were perhaps missing? Um, not really, actually. I mean, I, I understand that there's a lot there and I understand, obviously, that I'm biased because I'm Australian and this is the stuff I grew up with. So it's, it, it's, it's kind of nice to see so many of these extraordinary works uh, and some of which, you know, are... I mean, I can't begin to imagine what the logistics and insurance must have been. There's a, there's a lot of exhibits here that you really wouldn't want to have dropped. But I, I, I was I, mean, I, I was really pleased by to see some of the modernised, the more modernist ones. The, the Sidney Nolan, Ned Kelly series, which are among my personal favourite works of art ever. I think there's four of the 26 um, that Nolan painted, including the one which is on the uh, the advertising for. It's it's the it's the 
Yeah, it's it's the star of the show. It's it's Ned Kelly by by Sidney Nolan. Um, the one where he looks like a weird sort of robot. The one where he looks like a weird robot on a horse. Yeah. with a gun. Um, but again, <laughs> it's a good look. But but it is also it, it's a beautiful painting. But it's also a it does absolutely encapsulate that that Australian light um, that we were talking about earlier. So yeah, I actually think it's a it's a very good primer, if you will, as an exhibition to Australian visual art. I I wondered if. There could have been, I mean, because there are 200 works and there must be about half that many artists. And I wondered if they could have been more judicious in the choice of artists, because it felt to me like we didn't really, I mean, I'd love to have seen a room full of Nolan's paintings. You know, I'd love to have, you know, I'd love to have had pockets of real focus as well as this overview. I I, I especially would have loved to have seen a room full of Nolan's because I think the only place you can do that is Canberra and that involves having to go to Canberra. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's true. I mean, so so it it does give a very successful idea of the trajectory of Australian art and I I enjoyed you know, that no, having that knowledge of the history. But sometimes I just felt, why is that painting here? Why don't we have two more by this artist? And, you know, for instance, I absolutely love... um, uh, Fred Williams paintings and there are two Fred Williams paintings in the show and there are a lot of inferior but quite similar works which abstract the Australian landscape and Fred Williams takes these great flat planes which ease, which very clearly evoke the sunburnt land and then these wonderful random apparently random marks which are which are actually incredibly controlled and and rather beautifully colorful and to me I just want I wanted to, I wanted to experience more of that and fewer of the kind of related but less successful abstracts from that era so yeah i mean i guess that that you feel this journey but i just want i wanted more detail of certain pockets of that of that story Uh, this show was you know put together with the national gallery of australia but do you think it's a show that would work in australia andrew or is this actually more of a a a show for the rest of us i i think it is more of a show for the rest of us but I mean, but for anybody, including any Australian who is curious... I mean, I I found it interesting to see basically... Our, you know, my country's history sort of laid out in a few rooms of visual art. It is, I, I like the chronological aspect of it. Um, I like the way you could see the development of the, the, the visual vernacular as people tried to understand and accommodate and express Australia. And, you know, and I, I found bits of it really exciting and really, really moving. So I think there's... It, you know, th- this this particular collection of artworks has never been assembled before in one place. It probably never will be again. So I think even if you are an Australian who happens to catch themselves in London, it is, it, it is still worth seeing. I think what's interesting is, I suppose, for you, a lot of these works are the sort of crown jewels of the cultural heritage. Yeah, know? absolutely. Whereas, whereas for, for most visitors to this show, and I, I, I would estimate 90% of visitors will know one or two, probably Nolan, maybe one of the, the, the Impressionists, maybe not even that. You know, so, 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 so to most people seeing this show, none of, these, uh, none of the uh, works in the show will have a kind of resonance before they get there. And I think that's, in a way, that's kind of an exciting thing that you can really familiarise yourself with an entire nation, the work of an entire nation, if you like. So um, I found it kind of refreshing seeing so much that I didn't know. So if if you have a history of American art, if you have a history of French art, you're going to recognise so much of it. Absolutely. Whereas this really was, from from room to room, you're seeing artists you've never heard of before. Um, And I think perhaps that's why I did require a bit more detail in places, because, you know... I'd like to have seen more um, Fred Williams's paintings, for instance, the, the Impressionist, this lovely soft light that he was able to depict. Um, likewise, um, 
Arthur Streeton's work, which has seemed to me to be sort of a very um, uh, this 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 blue and gold quality that he achieved, the the, the real starkness of that Australian light, and, and um, but also there was there's this wonderful space around the time um, Nolan appears where you really sense a sort of darkness creeping into the landscape, landscape a kind of um, metaphor for anxiety within the landscape. But you, but you see that as early as something like, which is one of the pieces they do have, which is McCubbin's Lost, um, right. the, the, the famous one of this sort of faint outline of a bewildered little girl surrounded by Australian bush, which I think is still um, an incredibly evocative uh, summation of the mixed feelings Australians have about the, the slightly wild country that they do live in. I mean, obviously, now that there's mobile phone coverage, it's not quite the danger it once was, but there was a time when you know you got lost out there. You were you were done in a way yeah. that you you wouldn't be anywhere in Europe. I'm yes. afraid we're going to have to leave it right there. Um, on that cheerful on, note. On that cheerful <laughs> note. Don't worry, you're not going to die as much anymore. Uh, ben Luke, uh, thank you as ever for joining us on the review. Um, and it's good to know that uh, uh, a piece of art called Australia is actually. Very good, unlike the Baz Luhrmann film. Uh, If you're in London before the end of the year, you can catch Australia, uh, not the film, at the Royal Academy from today until the 8th of December. And speaking as an Australian, I would like to endorse everything Steve just said about both (laughs) Australia, the film, and Australia, the exhibition. Uh, This is The Review on Monocle 24. Next, we'll be starting our journey around the world. First stop, Nelly Gotchiva's Weekly Roundup. The ancient practice of agriculture meets modern metropolis as we explore groundbreaking urban farms in Tokyo, Brooklyn and Oslo. Monocle Films visits the people bringing green growth to their thriving cities. Everywhere you look, something is growing. There's Japanese pumpkin and bitter melon dangling from trellises and eggplant sprouting in the lobby. Tomatoes hang from a conference room ceiling and papaya and passion fruit trees double as partitions for meeting areas. Seeds in the city, in the film's menu on monocle.com. And you're back with the review here on Monocle 24 with me, Steve Bloomfield and Andrew Muller. And as ever, our Toronto Bureau Chief, Nelly Gotcheva, has been hard at work digging out the best that this weekend has to offer around the world. And here she is to talk us through it. in Singapore this weekend, stop by the Faust Gallery to learn a thing or two about the bed. Local curator Tang Ling Nach has put together nine mixed-media installations by Singapore-based artists that focus on their favorite piece of furniture, the bed. From clocks and sofa installations to fluffy cotton sheep, the playful exhibit is on until the 3rd of November. For more details, go to faustgallery.com. In Dubai, Gallery Isabel van den Eind welcomes The Divine is in the Detail by Pakistani artist Aisha Khalid. Expect geometric designs, rich colors and plenty of tulips in bloom. The Divine is in the Detail is on until the 8th of November. And for film lovers, Out Now on DVD is popular. The debut feature by French director Reggie Ronsard. Set in 1958 and shot in vintage Technicolor, the romantic comedy won the Best Narrative Feature Award at the San Francisco Film Festival this year. Popular is available for purchase now.
closing this weekend in Tokyo is Tokyo Blues 1977, a solo exhibition by Nobuyoshi Araki. It features 26 selected vintage prints from an exhibition held at the Nikon Salon in 1977. This time around, the show is at the Takaishi Gallery until Sunday. And this weekend we are listening to Nature Noir, the new album from Brooklyn's Crystal Stilts. And now let's hear them with Sticks and Stones. Monocle in Toronto, I'm Nelly Gotcheva. And that was Sticks and Stones by the wonderfully named Crystal Stilts, ending, ending that report there by Nelly Gotcheva. And staying on the topic of music, it's time for this week's music review. And today we're crossing to Copenhagen to speak again to Christian Newholm, label manager at Fake Diamond Records, who's going to be talking us through some of the DIY power ladies, it says here, making an impact on Denmark's music scene. Christian, welcome to the show again. Thank you. How are you? Um, very well, thank you. Um, when we say DIY, what do we mean by that in the Danish context? Uh, I see this as a very important part of the music scene nowadays. I mean, to be independent and to have like a full opinion about all aspects about putting out music from like the visual concept about the music, about how you present, how you interact with your fans and so on. I mean, I assume back in the days it was more focused on the music, but now you have to have like sort of like a holistic view on all aspects of music. So you have to, you know, be very DIY in that sense. And most artists nowadays are signed because you feel like this sort of, uh, I don't know, rising stars coming up. And then on behalf of some sort of buzz and energy, they got signed. I mean, they're not signed from the very beginning. I mean, from I don't know, from scratch, they have always, they have all, you know, they have all proven themselves from uh, from the beginning, and that's very important. This must make things uh, very nice and easy for uh, for record label bosses because they don't have to do any of the the hard work of uh, spotting the talent early I mean, on and, and helping develop. Never to sell records, so I mean, I, I'm I'm sure they have their challenges, but uh, <laughs> it, I mean, it's a, uh, it's I I think you know the whole label industry has changed as well, of course because the music industry has changed and now you're just sort of like an extension of an, a filter and you know a navigator and so on of another artist's project i mean you have to extend that you know uh, energy from the artist and that project you know yeah um, so, but i i wouldn't say it's easier but it's just a new challenge uh, Christian, the, the, the artists you've selected for us this week at the, at the risk of giving away the ending are all female artists is there a I mean, is it a particularly noticeable trend that there is there is, there is an upsurge in, in do-it-yourself music making by female artists in Denmark? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was. Uh, I was asked by you guys to present some of like the notable artists at the moment, and, and somehow I, I, you know, it was it was it was all very natural for me only to select a female artists, and then you know afterwards I was reflecting on this, and so I assume that's a trend. I mean. 
there is, uh, you know, the one being notable at the moment and recognizable and, you know, uh, established and the most interesting at the moment is female artists. I, I would say that, yeah. Okay, so well, it's, let's... It's a trend, uh, definitely, yeah. Uh, good. Christian, let's uh, let's take a listen to uh, some of those tracks. Let's start with uh, the first track is uh, by Oland, who uh, who Michael 24 listeners will, will know very well because we, we play her rather a, a lot. Um, would you like to, uh, to introduce this new single from Oland? I can. I mean, it's Renaissance Girl and uh, it's from her forthcoming album, which is not out in UK yet, but I assume it will be like next week or something. It's very irrelevant, actually, and it's produced by TV on the radio, David, uh, Dave Seitzik, and it's out on her own label, talking about DIY. Yeah, take, take a listen. Come along, come, come That was Renaissance Girls from the new album by Oland Wishbone, which is the first selection of today's music guest, Christian Newholm from Fake Diamond Records. Um, Oland, I believe I'm right in saying, has now signed to her own label. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, I mean, what is the appeal of that for an artist of her stature? It's, it's interesting because she was signed to, she was signed to, uh, to the label I'm running... Uh, from the very beginning, and then she got picked up by Epic, which is a huge label under Sony Music Worldwide. And uh, and she released her second album, her last album on that label internationally. And uh, she's been through the whole circus and, you know, touring 250 concerts a year. And, like, you know, she's been mad in that sense. I mean, she's really been trying it all in, you know, a very short time. So, as I I know from a fact that they disagree on you know several stuff and now she's releasing her album on her own label so it's a it's a huge change and uh, it's interesting because uh, I mean uh, sometimes it's just more natural to you know be closer to the actual project than to give it away to a big major label who are as I don't know too many filters to go through. Uh, now, now, Christian, let's uh, let's move on to the the next track. Um, we, you know, some listeners may be aware of the band uh, Quadron, but this is uh, from one half of Quadron, uh, Coco. Tell us about this track. Yeah, it's uh, Coco, uh, and Coco is Danish, and her producer Robin Hannibal, and uh, then they both live in Los Angeles now, and they they have released two albums. This is a new album, and Hail Off was the first single, and it was performed on David Letterman, and now. It's on radio on Monocle. Take it away. Quadron, or at least Coco there from, uh, with the track Hey Love, the second choice of this week's music reviewer, Christian Newholm from Fake Diamond Records in Copenhagen. Um, Christian, you mentioned there that Quadron were now based in Los Angeles. Is that still a necessary thing for do- to do, or is it a necessary thing for Danish artists to do? Do they still have to leave? <laughs> I mean, uh, I think people are leaving more, I mean, because of... Uh, whatever, it's easier to travel around. But uh, I think Copenhagen is a very happening scene at the moment. 
So there is a lot of things and a lot of opportunities happening in Copenhagen. So you could definitely stay here. But there is also a trend going from Copenhagen to Los Angeles. I have never seen so many, you know, from the creative scene, from the music scene, traveling to Los Angeles and, you know, producing albums and going there for like, you know, smaller periods and longer periods to actually get inspired. So it's it's a very common thing at the moment to travel, especially to Los Angeles, yeah. Um, and let's move on to your third track. This is uh, by an artist called Murr, uh, spelt M-O, uh, with a little line yeah. through it. If you're, if you're trying to look it up afterwards, don't look for Murr, as in M-U-R-G-H. Um, now, she's been touted as a sort of the new Grimes, uh, which is uh, yeah. not, not a bad label to have. Uh, tell us a little bit about oh. her and then, uh, and then introduce this song. Yeah, I mean, she's, uh, she's, she was an old punk chick and you know doing like very like alternative niche stuff and then she got she she attended this industry festival in Denmark and that's one and a half year ago and now she has she is on her fourth single and still no album out but there's just like bus all over the world on the most like notable blocks and uh, this is number Pilgrim That was Murr, spelled M-O with a line through it, with Pilgrim, the third choice of today's music reviewer, Christian Newholm from Fake Diamond Records. Um, Christian, you also wanted to talk to us, your, your last track that you've selected uh, this afternoon. This is this is Leslie Ming's new project. Uh, explain what Devon 7 is all about. Yeah, no one really knows. I mean, it's it, it, uh, there is released two tracks on YouTube, that's it, with videos. Made by her, made by her girlfriend, and uh, it's uh, it's still very fresh. It's just an example of something rising and something happening, and maybe she will be the one we are discussing, you know, on the same page as Mary Oldland and Quadron. So uh, yeah, let's give her a try. This is probably the first time she's on radio worldwide. So yeah. That's uh, Devon 7 there, uh, a world exclusive, no less. Uh, thank you very much to Christian Newholm there from Fake Diamond Records in Copenhagen. Uh, we're going to be crossing to San Sebastian in a moment, uh, but before that, it's time for this week's City Look Ahead, where, as you know, we, uh, we find a city around the world uh, and see what's happening there over the coming days. And today we're off to Buenos Aires, and here's our correspondent Ed Stocker to guide us through it. Things are hotting up in the Argentinian capital, and not only with the advent of the Southern Hemisphere spring, as the city's packed cultural calendar is proving. First up is the 2013 edition of the Buenos Aires International Music Fair, or BAFIM, with an as ever eclectic lineup. It's a trade show bringing together industry professionals from throughout the region, but the three-day event also sees a series of live shows programmed for punters at some of the Argentinian capital's best venues. Not to be missed is tonight's Amazon Spring at the Oreja Negra, featuring the ever-excellent Las Egros 
and all-female Patagonian rap group Femina. Eclectic enough for you? Bathim finishes on Sunday. So, Buenos Aires likes to mosh to live music more than most world cities, and Rock Nacional is the undisputed king of the genre. Now, however, the metropolis is to have its very own rock city, a vast space for live concerts in the city park that will rival the capital's football stadium venues. It kicks off next weekend, and the opening extravaganza will have a distinctly reggae tinge, with bands such as Dreadmar Eye and Gondawa taking part. Ja, after all, knows no language barriers. Expect regular concerts here in the future. It's been almost six months since the passing of one of Argentina's greatest modernist architects, Clorindo Testa. He's the man behind two of the capital's most recognizable landmarks, the Biblioteca Nacional, or National Library, and the Bank of London from 1959. Now don't be confused by the name, this is in Buenos Aires. A homage to Clorindo Testa has just opened about his work at the Recoleta Cultural Centre. And instead of merely presenting the architect's achievements, the exhibition tries to be more conceptual, looking to showcase the creativity and inspiration behind Testa's years at the top. And finally, Buenos Aires International Documentary Festival wraps up on Monday. The climax is Anthropotrip, a Mexican film that is presented as a live cinematic experience. Looking at the Mexican border town of Tijuana, a place where Latin America faces the US, two often uneasy stablemates, it's a mixture of visual arts, lights and music. For Monaco and Buenos Aires, I'm Ed Stocker. Thank you very much, Mr. Stocker. Good to have you back in Buenos Aires. Uh, you're listening to a review on Monocle 24. Next, the view from the ground at the San Sebastian International Film Festival. 24-7, 28 programmes, up to 10 hours of speech a day. There's a glorious feast of Monocle 24 to savour. But when you want a slimming digest, fear not, we've got the curator. Premiering every Saturday and downloadable via monocle.com and at iTunes, it's a weekly roundup of the best from the week that was. Hours of audio output distilled into one hour of selected interviews, quirky dispatches and journalistic coups. Plus, here again from the entrepreneurs, urbanists, architects, artists and culinary masterminds who made Monocle 24 special over the past seven days. That's The Curator, here on Monocle 24, premiering every Saturday at 9am London time.
Welcome back. It's Saturday and you're listening to The Review with Andrew Muller and Steve Bloomfield. The San Sebastian Film Festival, which began yesterday, has rather struggled over the 61 years of its existence to balance the advantage of its location in the beautiful Basque country with its timing at the end of the international festival season, which makes it difficult to wrest premieres from the likes of Edinburgh, Venice and Toronto. Which is why San Sebastian has been quietly reinventing itself as a more curated affair than the larger festivals and focusing on its role as Latin America's door to Europe and vice versa. Here to give us his take is writer for El Mundo's magazine El Cultural, author and Spain correspondent for Screen Daily, Daily Juan Sada, uh, who joins us from San Sebastian now. Uh, Welcome, Juan, to the review. Um, This is your 12th time at San Sebastian, uh, so you're a bit of a veteran. Um, what sort of changes have you noticed over the years? Um, well, one change has been that uh, there's been an economic crisis in Spain, very big, but at the same time, um, the festival has less money than it used to, as a lot of things in Spain. But I think it has more uh, power because uh, the new director and the new uh, ambition of the festival, I think, is uh, higher and better than it used to be. Uh, how have you seen the festival adapting to those somewhat straightened financial circumstances? Um, well, like uh, everybody is doing in Spain, less money but trying to do more. It's like in, I think it's happening in a film festival like San Sebastian, and it happens in a lot of places all over Spain, you have to you have to adapt yourself to these new circumstances. Um, now, as we said, a, a number of the films that are at San Sebastian have already had their premieres elsewhere. Um, we're going to look at some of those, but first of all, let's look at uh, something that is going to have its world premiere at San Sebastian, uh, The Young and Prodigious Mr. Spivet. Uh, in a moment, we'll talk about that, Juan, but first, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit of it. How can my parents have fallen for each other? They were like day and night. As for my sister Gracie, she dreamt of the spotlight. And then there was White Tin, my non-identical twin. He got the brawn. I got the brains. Your invention has won our prestigious Baird Award. Wow. go to Washington, D.C. to claim my award. Dear Spivet family, thank you for having taken care of me. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, that's the young and prodigious Mr. Spivet, uh, all about a 12-year-old cartographer, uh, no less. Uh, Juan, what, uh, what did you make of that? I think it's a pretty good movie. It's a very um, good film. I think that Jean-Pierre Genet fans... Amelie is his most, uh, is his most uh, famous film. We'll be very happy when they see the film. It's a film about a young boy. It's a film that it's, uh, that you can like uh, very young people, like children. And I think it can touch also uh, their parents, I mean, like older people. I mean, is it specifically a children's film or is it, is it something that the director clearly hopes will appeal to all generations? I think that um, for the last 15 years, maybe, everybody who's doing a children's film is also trying to do an all-generation film. So this, this is the case also, like Pixar, 
for example. Uh, Juan, the, the next film I want to talk about has possibly the best title uh, and the, the best description. It's a Witching and Bitching by uh, uh, Alex de la Iglesia. And it says here, it's a horror comedy where a group of Spanish thieves run amok amid a coven of cannibalistic witches. Um, we'll ask you what you think about <laughs> what that. Could go wrong? What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? Um, but first, let's hear a little bit of it. A clip there from Witching and Bitching, which, as Steve was just explaining, is apparently about an armed gang of bandits running amok amid a coven of flesh-eating witches. Um, uh, Juan, I'm guessing this isn't a great date movie. Uh, what what appeal might it have? It's a very good uh, film, I think. I think Alexander Iglesia, he won a Silver Lion in Venice two years ago for The Last Circus, and he has a very particular way of filming that is like grandiosity. He looks for big things happening on screen and he just uh, realizes it. He just does it. It's very good. Um, and it's... I mean, we, we, there's another film as well which we don't have a clip for which I want to talk about which is uh, Cannibal by Manuel Martin uh, Cuenta um, which is uh, also Spanish as well. Before we talk about Cannibal... Is there, um, you, know, when, you know, when you've been seeing quite a lot of Spanish films here at San Sebastian as well, and Latin American films, do you feel that the that the uh, that the local film industry is in a good place at the moment, um, or has the uh, the financial crisis really sort of taken the edge off it? Well, uh, Spanish cinema is not in its best moment. It's in a, in one of its worst moments. but I think that Spain is a place where you can find a lot of talent in directors. So there, there are uh, names, there are some uh, filmmakers who still do very good films, you know, and sometimes they have money, right now they don't have that much, but they, they, still, they still do it. Uh, and what do you make of Cannibal? This is um, the new film from uh, Manuel Martin uh, Cuenta, uh, which is, as the name suggests, about a cannibal. I think it's a, it's a metaphor about contemporary cannibalism, it's a metaphor about how do we eat each other in some way because we are competing all the time in this uh, capitalist world that we live. And it's a very ambitious film, and I think it's also pretty good. Uh, and finally, the the next film that we wanted to talk about, this is uh, Mariana Rondon, the Venezuelan director's new film, uh, Pelo Malo, which I believe translates approximately as bad hair. We do have a clip of that. That's uh, Pelo Malo, uh, Bad Hair by Mariano uh, Rondon, which is uh, it's about a nine-year-old boy's uh, obsession with uh, straightening his hair. Uh, how has this gone down so far at the festival? Um, this just screened this morning. It's a very good film, I think. It's a film about a nine-year-old boy whose mother suspects that he's gay, 
or at least that he's not the macho he she maybe expected him to be and it's it's a comedy it's a it seems to be very light but at the same time it's a very deep film about racism and about how global culture impacts in a very little boy I mean, leave, leaving aside the, the language, which obviously translates between South America and Spain, does, does the sense of humour always translate? Does sense of humour, how does it translate? I didn't understand the question, sorry. Um, that, that may be an answer to it right there. I mean, is what's funny in Venezuela seen automatically as funny in Spain, or is there a different sensibility across, you know, on different sides of the Atlantic? Well, it's it's different. It's different. We speak the same language, but it has something in common. I think that is that we Spanish people we are very um, we always laugh about our problems. We always are. We, we can be very cruel even with uh, ourselves. So this this is one thing that I think that Venezuela and Spain have in common. So we understand very good their their humor. Uh, Juan, we've got a, a couple of other films we want to just have a little look at. These are uh, a, a more sort of Hollywood, if you will. Uh, the first is a uh, Pri- Prisoners by uh, Denis uh, Villeneuve, who's uh, uh, obviously his name suggests Canadian, but it's got some uh, international stars with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, let's take a little listen to that. Do you have children, detective? I'm going to find your daughter. Show me your hands right now! Oh. You put those girls somewhere, Alex. No. I know you put those girls somewhere. He stays in custody until my daughter's found, right? We have a 48 hour hold on. It ends tomorrow unless we bring charges. Go charge him or something. That boy has never been in trouble, not a day in his life. Well, this thing's clean. I'd start looking in the woods by the rest stop. The police said they're letting him go today. What you doing? Tell me! Oh, no, no, no! Day six, and every day she's wondering why I'm not there. A clip from Prisoners by Quebecois director Denise Villeneuve starring uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman, who I believe is collecting a Lifetime Achievement Award at the San Sebastian Film Festival. Um, Juan, what was the view of Prisoners at San Sebastian? Um, I think that Prisoners will, will be one of the most important films of this year. It, it's a thriller, and it really has uh, this density, and it really has uh, a very powerful uh, cinematography. And it's a story, it's like a very ambitious film that actually achieves its ambitions. So everything is going to be a, a great hit everywhere. This film. Uh, and just finally, we've got a, one final one, which I, I must say, even the description of it kind of fills me with dread. The uh, Weekend by uh, Roger Mitchell, which looks like the worst type of a, of, a, of twee British rom-com. Uh, but let's have a listen to it and then you can tell me if I'm wrong. Why are we doing it? Where are we going? Why? What? Ooh, what? We're in Paris! Yes, exactly. Oh, Why don't we just stop just and enjoy look. it? Too modern. Too empty. Too touristy. Your knee's gone yet? No, not yet. What are you doing here in Paris? God, it's our wedding anniversary. And now you will have time just for each other. Mm-hmm. Shut up, you idiot. You make my blood boil like nobody else. A sign of a deep connection.
I think I'm going to have to back announce that because Steve has lost the will to live quite visibly. That was a clip from The Weekend by Roger Michel. I mean, the ingredients look promising. Screenplay by Hanif Karishi, starring Jeff Goldblum and Jim Broadbent and Lindsay Duncan. I- is it any good or is it as bad as Steve suspects? Um, why, why must be bad? I think I think that <laughs> the, uh, why no I think that this year we're seeing here in San Sebastian a lot of comedies you know which may seem weird because times are not uh, precisely very happy here in Spain but at the same time I think that comedy is always been a good way of talking about serious problems and I, I think that this film and uh, it's exactly what it does. Okay, look, we'll have to take your word for it because I'm afraid there's absolutely no way I'm seeing that film based on, certainly based on that clip. Um, But Juan Sada, Spain correspondent for Screen Daily, uh, thank you very much for joining us from the San Sebastian uh, Film Festival. Um, And that, uh, I'm afraid, Andrew, uh, brings us to the end of the review. Um, It's goodbye from all of us here at Midori House. The show was produced by Kate Bilbao and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The studio manager was Claire Urban. We're handing back over to Georgina with the weekend edition next where you can catch our pick of the week's best Monocle 24 stories, guests and features on the curator. And don't forget to tune into the Monocle Weekly which will be on air tomorrow at midday London time with Andrew Tuck and Gillian DeBias. But for now you've been listening to the review with me Steve Bloomfield and Andrew Muller. Have a good weekend. <laughs>